If you want to get rid of all the ads, just choose the David McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts and you'll hear us without any clutter or noise or ads. Lovely, John. Beautiful. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. How are you? It is podcast time. It's the podcast that tries to make economics that little bit more accessible, that little bit more relevant, and hopefully explains the world in a way in which we can all get our head around. John, how are you? Well, Jesus, we need that right now. (laughs) I'm telling you. What kind of a week was that? Well, it was... uh, From the podcast last week, last Tuesday, when we were talking about... Before the Bernie podcast. Yes. Before the Bernie podcast. But it was the Burning Man podcast. It was the Burning Man. (laughs) Exactly. The SVB debacle. And we were talking about that and how could it happen and all that kind of stuff. But between then and now... And Paddy's Day in the middle. And Paddy's Day in the middle. The whole place has gone to shit. Okay. We've had Credit Suisse. We've had... First Republic, this other bank. Absolutely. It's just gone. And as you said before, you know, when you see one cocker, cockerocha, you you see a load of them. But go on, tell us what's happened. So we are now back, John. Most people listening to the podcast will probably think, are you serious? We are now back in the era, in the land of bank bailouts, right? (laughs) Bailing out the banking system. Now, the interesting thing is, John, this is, there's a very, very old pedigree in bailing out banks, okay? And you were talking there about St. Patrick's Day and I was talking about being on Fox News. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Paddy's Day of 2008, right? (laughs) And Paddy's Day of 2008, Bear Stearns goes bust. Yeah, so, sorry, just before you get there, so you're brought on to Fox. I'm in New York, okay? I'm in New York on a book tour, right? okay? Okay. On a book tour for the American version of the Pope's children. So a long, long time ago, right? Right, So, and then what happens is when you're on a book tour, the agent books you on shows, right? Well, no matter shows, radio shows and TV shows and whatever. And And the timing was perfect. You're selling your wares. You're selling your wares. And it was Paddy's day and I was over there and it was fine, right? Hello, we got a redhead guy. We got a redhead, a real Paddy, right? (laughs) So I go on Fox News and it's just hilarious. I mean, it's it's, it's a complete, but I mean, basically all the, like, whether it's CNN, whether it's BBC, all the studios are the same. Yeah. They're always much smaller than you imagine in real life. Yeah, 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 yeah. And... They're living off, like the presenters are really hyped up all the time, particularly on Fox, right? They're just hyped up. So I'm in Fox News and it's Paddy's Day. And of course, as you said, the Americans love it. Yeah. Because you're Irish, you're talking about the economy. But fascinatingly, Bear Stearns goes bust that day. And it's the beginning of a process. But that night, I'm going to tell you about that night. Mm, Go on. I was staying in a hotel called the Knickerbocker Hotel. Which right. is a very swanky hotel in New York. 
and interests me because the Knickerbocker Hotel is also the name of the first big banking crisis in the United States. Can I just ask, is this anything to do with the Knickerbocker glory? Well, it's exactly the same thing. So oh, Knickerbockers, okay, okay so Knicker, no, no, so the same thing, it's the same. So Knickerbockers were the original residents of New York. Right. The Knickerbockers were Dutch speakers, right? And oh, okay. they were called Knickerbockers, right? Right. The Knickers comes from the actual pants they wore. That's what I knickers, thought. Yeah, yeah, which yeah, were yeah. Pants, right? But Knickerbockers were... Went down to the knees. Went down to the knees. This was the nickname for Dutch people who lived in New York. And of okay. course, we forget that it was called New Amsterdam. It was a mm. Dutch colony. Yeah, so yeah. Harlem, Brooklyn, these are all Dutch words, right? Yeah. Now, the Knickerbockers was the nickname that all New Yorkers got because they were Dutch speaking. Mm. But the interesting thing is the first big banking crisis, June, 1907. I bring you back, right? In 1906, there was a San Francisco earthquake. Yes. Can you be aware of this, That's right? right, yeah, yeah. So at the time in the United States... Wipe the place out. Amazingly. But at the time in the United States, there was no central bank. There was no federal reserve. Right. So there was a fixed supply of money, which was linked to gold. Mm. So as long as the gold supply was constant the money supply was constant. Now, what that meant in a country as big as the United States yeah. was when, for example, there was money demanded in a certain sector or a certain region or a certain area, yeah. money would flow to that area, which meant other areas ran out of money. Okay. This is the bizarre yeah, thing. There's yeah. no central bank. So in 1906, there is a massive, massive earthquake in San Francisco. I think it was the first big San Andreas fault one that people remember. Yes. Okay? Well, it was the first one that had such an impact because it wiped out San Francisco. So what happened then? 1906, wipes out San Francisco. Mm. 1907, they start rebuilding San Francisco. Yeah. And when you're rebuilding an area and you have a fixed money supply, the money that used to be in New York goes to San Francisco to finance all the construction, right? right? Okay. So suddenly there is a problem in New York that they're running out of money and the rate of interest goes up, right? Okay. Now, at this time, this is a fascinating story, right? So at this time, there is a massive bank called the Knickerbocker Trust, okay? Right. Which is the second biggest bank in the United States. And right. it begins to run out of money because all the money is flowing to San Francisco. And mm. at the same time, a bunch, remember we talked about Butte, Montana last week? Yes, yeah, so we did. So Butte, yeah. Montana is a big copper mine, in effect, mm. run by the Heinz family. Same people who came up with the ketchup. Right? And, and same, beans. Same people, right? <laughs> they were a German family, okay? Right. And Augustus Heinz and his brother Otto Heinz were the biggest traders in copper because they owned the biggest copper mine. And that's why there's so many paddies up there because they worked in the copper mine, right. right? Now, of course, what happens is Augustus decided to corner the market for copper, right? So there was no, we talk about short sellers. There, was, there were mm. people shorting copper and Augustus said, I'm going to teach you guys a lesson. I'm going to buy up all the copper, right? I'm going to squeeze your short positions and I'm going to destroy you and I'm going to be the copper king. Now, in order to do this, he had to borrow money and he borrowed from his mate who ran the Knickerbocker Trust. Right, okay. okay. So this is a bit like, if you can imagine, the big banks lending to people, right? And of course, what happened was the Knickerbocker Trust lent all this money to Augustus Heinz and his brother Otto. They tried to corner the copper market. They didn't succeed because there was more sources of copper elsewhere. Copper prices goes up then right. the copper prices falls. Then they've got to pay back the bank. They don't have enough money. They default on the bank. And the Knickerbocker Trust goes into bankruptcy. Right? Right. Okay. okay. And watching all this is a fellow called J.P. Morgan. You know the fellow we told? Uh -huh. right? And okay. J.P. Morgan was the geezer who came up with that, nothing so undermines your financial judgment as the sight of your neighbor getting rich. Yes. Right? That great yeah, expression. Yeah. So J.P. Morgan is looking at this and he's realizing exactly like today, Knickerbocker is gone. 
people are panicking. People are taking their deposits out. There's a yeah. bank run going on all over America. So Knickerbockers are the same as the SVBs. Knickerbocker was the SVB of yeah. the time, yeah, right? Yeah. And what happens is Morgan says, somebody's got to step in to bail out the system. And Morgan bailed it out with his own money. Right. So JP wow. Morgan, right, fascinating, JP Morgan sat down with lots of other bankers and he got them all into a room in Wall Street and said, guys, if we don't stum up our own cash to bail out these banks, to reassure people that their deposits are actually safe, we're going to have a bank run that's going to destroy the financial system. And they came up with a bailout of their own money, with their own money. That's incredible. It wow. is incredible. And then from there, they decided to set up what? The Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve that we know now yeah. was set up following a private bailout of the banking system sourced in the collapse of the Knickerbocker Bank, which yeah. is, of course, called the Knickerbocker Bank because that's the original New Yorkers. And then after they bailed out the system, Morgan went to the Treasury Secretary and says, you have to set up a governmental agency, a central yeah. bank, yeah. like the Bank of England, for example, that in times of crises will print money and bail out the finance system. So that's where the Fed that's comes amazing. from. That's amazing, right. Now, the interesting thing about Paddy's Day that night is I ended up in a bar called the Dublin House on 79th Street. Actually, interestingly, 79th Broadway on one side, Amsterdam Avenue, back to the Dutch. Okay, the yeah. With our mates. Yeah. And it got a little bit messy. Right. That's a really good, yeah. And I went back to the Knickerbocker Hotel. And the Knickerbocker Hotel was quite swanky. And you know the swanky hotels are so swanky, you don't really know where the door is. <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, and I went for a pee. <laughs> and on. I opened the door back from the jacks in this really swanky room. Yeah. In me pants. And I'm out on the corridor. <laughs> okay. And it's one of those really boutique hotels. Right. So there's nothing to hide behind. So, 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 so I have to go downstairs in me pants. And it's one of these, in your knickerbockers. In me knickerbockers. That's one of these huge American foyers. So you have to walk across. It's like walking across St. Peter's. Right. <laughs> Demanding a key at five in the morning in me, in me knickers. I'd say you walked... I'd see you walk with your head high. Head high, <laughs> chest out. <laughs> and you can just see the poor woman. It's like, oh my. <laughs> we got a 394. Exactly. Security, security. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so the, that's the, the first and last time I stayed in the Knickerbocker Hotel. Yeah, it was Paddy's Day, Paddy's Day, 2007, <laughs> after a night, very good bar, the Dublin House. One of the old Irish bars yeah. on the one of the last Irish bars left on the Upper West Side because Upper West Side is now posh, really, really posh. Big long bar in it, massive. You know, I'd say twenty yeah, the or thirty. Old New York bars, yes, yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So that is the story we kick off with this week, which That's is fantastic. the Federal Reserve, which this week is bailing out American banks, came <laughs> from the story of the Knickerbocker Trust collapse in 1907 and in a great piece financial symmetry and historical symmetry this weekend yeah a the united states put together a team crack team to bail out the banking system and it comprised of janet yellen the treasury secretary yeah jay powell the head of the fed that was established by jp morgan yeah and jamie diamond the head of what bank 
J.P. Morgan. Right, okay. So it all has a lovely symmetrical, historical sweep to it that J.P. Morgan Bank are still involved at the epicentre of all banking crises in America. And it all stems from the San Francisco earthquake of 1906. Yes, indeed. So, so, so let's go back to San Francisco where all the tech banks are going bust. And what's happening? And what is the knock-on effect? What is the state of play with, with the, the whole system, the whole okay. banking system now? The whole banking system. So we're going to talk to Dario Perkins in a sec, one of the great monetary economists. Mm, but yeah. before we talk about it, the banking system, right, two problems, John. Inflation is one objective, and the stability of the banking system is the other one. The reason the stability of the banking system is one is because if you regard the banking system a bit like the heart of the economy, it's the muscle that mm, pumps yes, yeah, yeah. credit around the economy, and that's how the economy continues to function, right? Now, what typically happens is when inflation is rising, interest rates go up. The central bank puts up interest rates to bring down inflation. But the problem is when interest rates are rising, banks have a problem, right? And the reason they have a problem is because deposit rates start to rise. Yeah. And then depositors say, well, you know what? I would like to get 4% of my money because people have been getting 0% for years. Yeah. Now yeah, interest yeah. rates are rising. They say, hold on a second. Why don't I go to my bank and say, why can't I have a decent return? Mm. The problem with the banks is they've done so many other things that they're trying to prevent interest rates. What the banks are trying to do is they're trying not to pass on these interest rate rises. But of course, what happens is that means people say, well, I'll take my money elsewhere. Mm. So in a crisis, what basically happens is because the banking system is so fundamentally important to the economy, the bankers know this, right? And we experience this in Ireland, right? Mm. So I always regard this as akin to a hostage dilemma, right? So you imagine the hostage, right? There's the hostage. Yeah. There's the hostage taker. Mm. There's the ransom. And there's the person who pays the ransom, yeah. okay, to release the hostage. Now, what happens in a banking crisis is it becomes like a hostage situation. The economy is the hostage. The bankers hold a gun to the head of the government and say, if you don't give us a bailout, we'll shoot the economy, right? Yeah. <laughs> because we will go bust and then the yeah. economy stops, right? Then your tax revenue stops and you go out of government. Yeah. So the bankers are like the hostage taker, right? The economy is the hostage and the state is on the hook. And the state can then say, well, let's see, do we risk the bankers blinking first? Yeah. And do we jeopardize the economy? And in so doing, do we call their bluff? But the risk of that is you get a banking crisis and a contagious crisis and the economy goes into a tailspin. Or do we pay them now, get the economy going again, and they win? Mm. And that's exactly where we are now. So who is going to bail out who, right? So let's go to London. And do you end up with the Stockholm Syndrome there? Yes, you do. And that's exactly what has happened. And the banking sector knows this. The, the economy falls in love with the banks then. The government falls in love with the banks. Yeah. And of course, the economy then gets glued into the banking system through the credit market. And that's how the whole thing works. But the idea now is that after... 30 years of low and lowish interest rates. Yeah. After three years of zero interest rates because of the pandemic, we've had the greatest monetary tightening in 50 years in the last 12 months. Something has to give, and now things are giving. So why don't we go to London 
talk to Dario, get him to put the big picture on it, and then we can come back and tie up all the loose ends. Great. Now, what a week. We were talking to you last week about the tech bros licking frogs, doing ayahuasca, <laughs> and then worrying about their balance sheets and being <laughs> caught in this trade between the short and the long end of the curve. And hey, presto, when you wake up from your ayahuasca trip, uh, the bank is bust, okay? So we were talking about that, but but, but what we were saying last week is that usually in banking crises, they're a bit like cockroaches in New York City. They never come in ones. If you see one cockroach, there's bound to be, maybe not thousands, but there is because the financial world is so interrelated, so interconnected, so cross-collateralized that what you tend to happen is if you have a problem in one bank, well, you can be rest assured that other banks are playing the same game and that game is going to catch up on them. So that was the way we left it last week. On Tuesday, then by Thursday, Credit Suisse, the big Swiss bank, was wobbling badly. I think this morning or over the weekend, we're hearing that's going to be bought over by my ex-employer, UBS, and a couple of other banks are teetering, and let's see what happens. Now, to make sense of all this, we have on the line Dario Perkins, one of the finest monetary economists in the business. Dario, how are you? Good to see you. Yeah, not bad. I think, like everyone, I'm suffering a sort of post-traumatic stress disorder from 2008. You know, having sat on the RBS trading floor and just watching the world sort of melt, it's hard It's hard not to have a little feeling of that right now. Well, let's explore that. Is this 2008? No, I, I, think, it's, I think it's very different. I think that, you know, we were all sort of waiting for something to break because we'd just been through the, the sort of most rapid and broadest monetary tightening in history. And everyone was sort of looking at what's, we know that something always breaks when central banks do this. You know, they were freaking out about the 1970s. They were raising interest rates very, very rapidly. And we knew that something somewhere would break. But weirdly, nobody was really looking at the banks. So we were thinking about property markets and commercial property and private equity and tech and all of that stuff. And, you know, I think what this has exposed is that, um, you know, central bank, uh, all of these sort of banks have had this, this, this sort of basic business model that was assuming that interest rates would stay at zero forever. And part of that was actually the regulations that we put in after the last financial crisis, where we sort of encouraged them to hold bonds on the basis that interest rates would stay very, very low and these were very safe assets. And what we're discovering is that, you know, because they've been holding all of these bonds, they've been running this, what we call duration risk, which is that when these bonds have lost value, their asset position has deteriorated. Now, with Silicon Valley Bank, this was sort of particularly pronounced because their whole business model was tuned to zero interest rates because, you know, they were heavily exposed to the tech industry because of where they were located. So all of their depositors were these big tech companies and those tech companies got absolutely hosed by interest rates rising very, very quickly because, you know, that sector was very, very sensitive to the idea that interest rates would stay at zero forever. And then, you know, once these these guys started to pull their money out of Silicon Valley, then, you know, they had this issue where they had to then try to sell the bonds and it also lost value. So they had this sort of classic uh, bank run. Now, you know, in their case, that was very, very pronounced and, and quite unusual. And, you know, some of their their risk management had been particularly poor. But it is highlighting this broader issue in banks, which is that, you know, banks also have this exposure because they, you know, we, we forced them to hold bonds over the past decade because we thought bonds were safe. But also, you know, all of the mortgages that they wrote were fixed rate mortgages. 
So, you know, people have sort of taken comfort from the fact that interest rates going up isn't going to squeeze housing markets in the way that it did before. But it does squeeze the banks. And so the only way that banks can get around this is by screwing their depositors. So if they don't raise their deposit rates, they can sort of offset you know, the losses that are happening in other parts of the balance sheet. But because interest rates are now so high, people have got this incentive to take their money out of the banks and put them into other things like government, you know, government bonds and, and things like that. So it's this sort of mini run. And it's very different to 2008 because it's not as if they're holding these sort of impossible to quantify toxic assets. But it is an issue here where, you know, credit conditions and financial conditions are suddenly tightening very, very quickly in a way that we can't even observe in real time. So if you're a central banker, you know, you wanted to sort of squeeze the inflation out of the system. You wanted to do this in a very gradual way so that they could you could actually, you know, monitor the economy, monitor inflation. Yeah. And you know that central bankers are control freaks, so they, they wanted to sort of maintain this squeeze. And then suddenly they've got this big tightening that they can't really control. And so, you know, they're in this this really difficult dilemma about what to do about that. So let's just let's just take it back, right? So after the last crisis, particularly in the housing, what we all the regulators said to banks is what you should do is lend at fixed interest rates to punters so that punters are insulated from this amplification of interest rates going up and down where your mortgage rate can go from, I don't know, your repayments from 1,000 euros a month to like 1,400 and suddenly you are in a position where your real income has collapsed. So we said, okay, let's not do that. So by protecting the lender, we expose the borrower. So the borrower then takes the hit, okay? So the bank says, I have a fixed rate of, let's say, 3% mortgage rate, and I have 100,000 of those mortgages out there. Nominal interest rates go to 4%. Suddenly the bank is underwater. He is subsidizing the lender. Okay, so I get that. In the old way, in the old 2008 what we were looking at was number one, we were looking at that. How do you fix that? So you don't expose the average Joe to banking dilemmas. Number two, we were looking at what the bank was doing off the balance sheet in the murky area of all these sort of various different products. People couldn't get a handle on with that. So there was a there was a there was a black hole in the bank's balance sheet. What there is now is not a black hole, it's very transparent. They're holding government bonds. We know exactly how much they're worth. But on the other hand, they have fixed deposit, are they fixed products out there? So what you're saying is now people are saying to banks, well, if you don't give me five or 6%, I'm gone on my deposits, right? And the banks can't do anything about it. So it's it's sort of, they call this sort of regulatory arbitrage, which is, is basically saying that financial risk is a bit like a virus and it can constantly mutate. And so it finds a way around the regulation. So if you think about what we did last time, we focus on the banking system and that pushed money into capital markets and non-banks and pension funds and insurance funds and private equity and all of that stuff, which we didn't regulate. We focus on the big banks. And this is a problem mainly in the smaller banks because they weren't regulated in the same way. We told them to, to hold bonds because we thought those bonds were extremely safe because we thought interest rates were going to stay at zero forever. But everything else central banks did and governments did was trying to push inflation higher. So there's sort of basic conflict there. And then, you know, we wanted central banks to sort of, we wanted these these private banks to focus more on holding deposits rather than other riskier forms. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of the perfect cocktail of all of these reforms, encouraging a behaviour that because we were fighting the last war, we have this different battle now, which is, is a sort of an irony to this, that it's it's come out exactly where you would have expected it to have come out if you designed those 
in a forward-looking way rather than in a backward-looking way. So what you're saying is now it's a deposit battle that's going on. So now the risk in the banks is at the very short end that they will actually lose deposits. And as a consequence of that, they will contract. And if they lose deposits, then somebody will say, well, hold on a second, this guy's losing too many deposits. I want my money out. So the bank run is coming from the very front end. It's nothing to do with what they've actually put their money in. It's actually to do with this fear of a bank run at the very front end. So, yeah, I mean, you know, all of these pressures, I mean, these should have been sort of longer term pressures on banks. Banks' profitability would have suffered over time. But if they could have offset that by, you know, buying higher higher interest rate bonds and by uh, extending loans, then they could have overcome those problems. But it's just been accelerated by this sort of classic bank run dynamic that's been triggered in the US. And I have to say, this is this is a much bigger problem for the US than it is for Europe because, the, you know, the regulation didn't really cover the smaller banks. And it's the smaller banks that are most exposed to this deposit fly. And in fact, what we're seeing in the US is that people are taking their money out of the smaller banks and putting them back into the big banks because they think the big banks are safer. So the only way to stop this is to just guarantee all of the deposits in all of these banks and then try to stop the run. And then as a central bank, you can then go back to sort of focusing on interest rates and you know tightening in the traditional way. But they seem reluctant to do that. And that's the bit that's sort of surprising. And then, you know, Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary this week, was talking about how those deposits in the small banks weren't actually safe, which is probably the last thing you need from a policymaker. So, you know, they're going to have to do more. And and what I think what I'm hoping in all of this is that because central bankers are suffering from this sort of post-traumatic stress disorder from 2008, they will get there very quickly to actually solving this. You know, they have these sort of two big fears right now. They have the fear of the 1970s, which I think is just totally irrational. And then the inflation fear. fear. That's the inflation fear that they're going to lose control. Because, you know, the big thing about the 1970s in their minds is that central banks, just as they were getting a hold on inflation, they then eased off too quickly and they loosened policy and then the inflation got locked in. So that's the sort of 1970s fear. That's, you know, largely, I think, sort of hypothetical. I, you know, I think that's that's sort of a real risk right now. And then they have this banking risk. that the is 2008 fear. fear. That's the 2008 risk. And that's actually seems to be happening, you know, in front of their eyes. So I think they have to focus on that one. And so they have to deal. The only way they're going to be able to deal with this is to, is to really do what the Bank of England did. You know, the, I think the Bank of England is the template for this because, the UK was sort of the first thing to break, you know, in this tightening cycle, where you had that issue with the pension funds. And Last had, October, you know, yeah, yeah. And again, that was a base, That was about a business model that was based on the idea that interest rates would be zero forever, and it turned out that was wrong. And so the Bank of England had to do this really weird thing that confused people at the time, is they then had to start sort of doing QE again, even though they were still raising interest rates, because they had to sort of, I joked about it at the time, I said they were trying to secure the wheels onto the car more securely so they could drive more forcefully into the wall, which was basically that you know, they were still raising interest rates, but they had to try and sort of stop the financial sector from blowing up in order to maintain that monetary squeeze. Otherwise, they would have lost control of it. So that's what I think all of these central banks now need to do. They need to try to control this squeeze that's happening in the financial sector, you know, patch up these problems in banks. And if they do that, then they can keep interest rates where they are and try to you know, squeeze the inflation out. The risk here is that they just lose control of it, they panic, and then I think they're cutting interest rates quite quickly. And then maybe they lock in some of the inflation, but you know that just means we don't go back to 2%. It doesn't mean we're stuck at sort of 6%, 7 8% inflation indefinitely. So I don't see that 1970s dynamic. 
I think the risk here is probably a recession, but it is not a sort of 2008 financial crisis and deep recession, but I can see a sort of mild recession coming out of this. Just before you go, what is the risk that I'm always worried uh, as a former central banker when, and I'm, I'm thinking of the individuals and the sort of the collective that are, that, that are still knocking around, when you decide that central banks have this one, they've got it covered, they have a plan, typically that uh, wheel and wall impression come back to haunt you, that typically things go wrong. What's your fear that, you know, if you stand back, there's a huge amount of debt in the system, there's a massive amount of inflation still in the system for their liking, okay? They haven't yet come to this idea that, well, we can chill out, we can raise targets on inflation and we can relax for a while. That, and there's contagion in the system as well because of everything's interrelated. What's your fear that, you know, a bit like I remember was March 1994 and I was sitting in UBS in my first or second week and not really understanding what was going on in the world. And the Federal Reserve decided to increase interest rates quite dramatically at the time. And suddenly the trading floor was going mad. There was a sell-off. There was an emerging market crisis. And before I knew it, Mexico was in default. What's the risk of something like that happening? Well, I think that we've been, we've sort of been seeing that. We've, we've seen these spillovers through global markets, you know, for investors, last year was the worst year in 150 years because, you know, bonds lost value and equities lost value in the same year. And that combination was sort of historically bad um, in, in terms of it sort of spilling over into different into different markets. I think I think they will get a handle on this. I think that they may have to accept sort of slightly higher inflation than they would like. But effectively, you know, that they're going to have to sort of socialise a lot of this stuff. And I think the risk is a sort of, you know, when, when I look at what's happening in banks right now, it sort of has these eerie parallels with the 1980s and that that savings and loan crisis in the US, which is a lot of smaller banks just shut down and, you know, went bankrupt. And it's that, I think, is a sort of slow motion rolling, you know, bank problem where bank profitability gets squeezed and credit gets squeezed. But I don't, I, I think it's very, very different from a sort of 2008 dynamic. I mean, you know, what happened in Europe um, this week was sort of largely irrational, you know, with, with Credit Suisse. I mean, everybody knew that Credit Suisse was a horrible bank and they'd had this terrible reputation. But, you know, it wasn't as if they were sort of caught swimming naked, as this sort of old cliche goes about, you know, it's only when central banks are tightening that you find out who's swimming naked. I mean, everybody knew about these problems. So that was a, a pure confidence crisis, I think. And I think that those sorts of crises are reasonably easy to patch up as long as central banks take them seriously. And I think given what happened last time, I'd be amazed if central banks weren't just panicking about this now and sort of overdoing it. You know, I think that's probably the more likely thing here, that they'll do too much rather than too little because they can't allow the financial system to collapse. If you go back to 2008, there was this real naivety among central bankers because they didn't understand that financial markets mattered. They didn't understand that banking mattered. You, we, we laugh about it now, <laughs> but, you know, their models didn't include a banking sector. They didn't include a, a sort of credit dynamic. And then, you know, when it sort of started to kick off, 
I remember Mervyn King giving these big lectures about moral hazard and we shouldn't bail out banks and all of that stuff. And those sort of ideas got absolutely killed because, you know, we had the worst recession in sort of 70 years. And so I think central bankers now realise that financial markets are important. They realise that the credit system is important and they're going to have to protect those in a way that they didn't in 2008. And this should be easier to fix. You know, all you have to do is really take the bonds off these banks. And remember, central banks are also making massive losses anyway because of QE. So QE took out huge amounts of bonds out of the financial sector and put it into the central bank's balance sheet. And in the same way that these private banks are now losing money on their bond holdings, central banks are also losing money on their bond holdings. So they're going to have to do, they're going to have to do more of it. And they're going to have to accept you know, that that was, that was the consequence of what's happened over the past few years. The thing is that central banks can't go bust, so it doesn't really matter if they're losing money or not. Nobody cares. No, it doesn't matter. I mean, there's a there's a fiscal impact. So you know, these central banks have been um, making profits on those bonds and giving that money to the government. And they gave the money to the government, and now that stops, and they start to run at losses. They don't demand money off of governments to cover those losses, but governments won't be getting a source of revenue that they had before. So there's a fiscal consequence of all this. But, but it's pretty tiny in comparison to the other catastrophe that could go on. It, it's tiny. And, you know, and the other lesson from 2008 is the longer that you let these problems rumble on, the bigger this confidence crisis becomes, the bigger the eventual bailout. So the best thing with a bailout is just to say you hate the idea, but just do it and do it quickly. <laughs> because if you don't, the cost of that bailout, bailout is only going to go up over time. We will leave it there. Dario, thank you so much for that. We'll talk to you very soon. Great to see you. Thanks very much. Always a pleasure. So, Mac, let me get this straight. It seems to me like it's a bit of a, a Hobson's choice. The fear of going back to embedded inflation of the 1970s yep. or bank bailouts of, of the 2008. And what does the government, what do the central banks do? So let's have a chat about that after a bit of this. 
and austerity for everyone else. Right. Yes. So, and that's why I'm not as sanguine as everybody else about how this actually plays out. So, in order to keep the banks from going bust, certain banks, right? Mm. They have to basically take, remember we were talking about they have all these bonds in their balance sheets? Yeah. They basically have to take those bonds, the central bank has to take them on, give them cash. So they liquefy the banks. Okay, yeah. that's the first thing. So that's like MMT for the banks. Yeah. Right? You basically give them money. So that's the central bank buying their own bonds. It's the central bank buying government bonds. Yeah. Right? So in Which effect, is the it's effect like, the same. Uh, well, it's, 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 it is the same because, you know, what I've always thought about, you know, the key to understanding central bankers and central banking is they print the money. So they mm. can't go bust, right? So they are not only are they money is very simple. There's two people who use money. There's the issuer of money, central bank. Yeah. There's a user of money, us. Yeah. The user of money faces a budget. Because if we don't work, yeah. we don't yeah. get sure, money, sure, right? Sure. Whereas the issuer has no budget constraint. So they can do whatever the ever the hell they like. Which is why central bankers, you know, need to know a bit about economics. Okay. <laughs> a little small bit, right? Okay. Right. Small bit, right? So they can do that. The way this plays out, imagine now if interest rates continue to rise to actually squeeze inflation. Now, that is austerity for the punter. Mm. But at the same time, they are, with the other hand, buying bonds off the banks and giving them money, right? That doesn't play out very well in the long term because what goes back to this idea is you're socializing the losses of the banks in some way, shape, or form, yeah. and you're penalizing the punter. Right okay. now, in the old way, in two thousand and eight, it was very explicit because it was all done through the governments. So the governments raised taxes and cut spending, which was the austerity. Yeah, the austerity. Yeah. Right. That will come in the guise of higher interest rates yeah. rather than cutting taxes and spending. So it won't be exactly the same, mm. but it's still the same general impact on the day to day person. Okay. While at the same time, whereas the last time, what the governments do is they bought and guaranteed the debts of the banks. The Americans have already guaranteed the deposit of the banks. Dario thinks they'll have to deposit, guarantee the deposit of all banks, right? Uh, but in order to do that, yeah. rather than do it in a fiscal way, i.e. raising taxes, they'll actually just give them soft loans, right? What's now, a soft loan? Which is basically what the, the central bank will say to the bank, what have you got on your balance sheet? So basically, the, the problem with banks is they have on their balance sheet these illiquid assets, yeah. bonds, houses, yeah. loans to companies, all these things, right? I used to call it the Des Kelly carpet dilemma, right? <laughs> okay. So Irish banks lent to you yeah. to buy some new Des Kelly carpets, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's, they have to liquidate the Des Kelly carpets in order to get the money back, which they can't do, yes. right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Whereas, it, so so what they would do is they'll roll up all those Des Kelly carpet loans into one thing, right? <laughs> and they would give that to the bank at the discount window and the bank would, at the central bank, and the central bank would give them real money. Right. So okay. it's just, it's like, central banking is like a pawn shop, always regarded as a pawn shop, right? In the old days, you'd go in with your jumper yeah. and your jacket and your suit, and you'd give the pawn broker the jacket and the suit, and he'd give you back money, yeah. right? And then he'd pawn the jacket and the suit onto somebody else. It's the same yeah, but so, basic so what principle. So the, the, what does the central bank do with, with Des Kelly carpets? With the bonds of Des Kelly yeah. carpets. Yeah. It just sticks them in a hole and forgets about them. Okay. <laughs> I know. This, this is the magic Jesus. of central banking. This is, okay. this is okay. the alchemy of central banking is because you print the money. Yeah. You can do whatever the fuck you like. It's like it's right. like Matthew McConaughey in The Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Fugazi, Fugazi, <laughs> Fugazi. Remember that scene? Yeah. That's exactly what Brilliant. it is. 
<laughs> right. Okay. Fugazi. But apart from the central bank having lovely carpeted floors everywhere. Yes, Kenny carpets, yes. Going back to the depositor then. So yeah, like so what, if, somebody, so if you want to take your money out, if you say, well, hold on a second, if you're not going to give me 5% interest rates, which is what I'm paying on my overdraft, or if I'm paying for a loan, I'm going to take my money out. Okay, and they take it out. And what do they do? What do they do with it? Where do they put it? Do they go put it into crypto? They can do go they, to Terramilinos. They, they could go to... Um, it's and, a very they, interesting do, question. You know, or do they put it into property or... Or do they put into big banks, into the Other bigger big banks? banks. That's yeah. what's happening in America. And and then those big banks become even more of a monopoly. Even bigger banks. Yeah. yeah. No, so, I mean, it is it is an extraordinary situation whereby the average depositor is now having to face the notion that they are losing money by keeping money in the banks. Yeah. But what else do they do? Now, two or three years ago, as you said, people bought crypto, right? Yeah. Now, what's happening to crypto, as we've always said, the crypto is something particularly Bitcoin, but it's not money. Like I've yeah. always said, it's a speculative asset. Now, surprise, surprise, it's going up. Yeah. Value. Now, why is it going up? Because everyone's expectations of interest rates are going down. The very, very the long term, the central banks will not raise interest rates as much as they should do because they're worried about the banking system. Yeah. And therefore, all what they call risk assets have gone up. All risk assets. Everything. Yeah, Bitcoin yeah. being one of them, right? So that's that's the key. But the problem with something like Bitcoin is no yield on Bitcoin. Yeah. So it's just it's just an asset speculation. If it goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down, it goes up, and it goes down, right? Yeah. And then the rest of the crypto is completely tainted by the SPF yeah. stuff, right? And the sense that, hold on a second, if you think the banking system's bad, this is as bad, right? Yeah, yeah. Property, we were about to do a whole piece on property for Thursday. Yeah. You know, again, you put your money into that and you create social problems all the time because the people who want property or the young don't have the deposits. And the people who are the old people yes. yeah, buy yeah, the yeah. property, and that creates a generational Distorts war. the whole market, yeah. So, yeah, no, it's impossible to know what to do. It's impossible to know what to do. I've always, I, I think you should spend it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's, that's what Lord Kane said. In the long run, we're all dead. Ain't that the truth? <laughs>